I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, But we will. Uh, And there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers. So join us for Plenty Plenty Questions. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop craze youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and standing by my side today are Sarah B. Hello. And Simon Price. Hello, hello, hello. Just by the look of you, I can tell you simply bursting to tell me <laughs> of all the pop and interesting things that have happened of late. Come on. Well... I mean, what what is there to? I mean, where to, where to start? Um, yeah. I have mostly. Uh, last time we spoke to you, Sarah, it was pre-lockdown. And we were having a right old chuckle about it, weren't we? Yeah, it was. It feels so long ago. I mean, time has just done some insanely bendy things. Yeah. The thing is that I think I think we sort of realised that it was going to be quite. But I wasn't like shocked by. I don't want to do the whole like. Oh well, no. I, I, I wasn't shocked by this at all. Who was shocked? Because of course it was a massive shock, but. I got a fair inkling of like, oh, this is going to be big and bad. Yes. And I kind of had to get my head, I had to like face into it and go, okay, this is what's happening now. And it really was, I somebody at the time wrote about being in a, a, a huge crisis as she was, uh, she'd like worked in war zones and stuff. And she's like, look, this is the really scary bit because you're at the top of the roller coaster and you have no control. Yeah. And you're going, oh, oh shit. And I definitely felt like that. I was, you know, it was really, mm. I mean, we went into sort of self-imposed lockdown a week early, which is what we thought everyone should be doing. But yeah. of course, there was this period of fateful fucking dithering that happened, you know. Yeah. And uh, so we just stayed in our, we we just stayed in uh, like the previous week and tried mm. to get our heads around it. And it's like, oh, fuck, 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 fuck. And you know, you do get your head around it because you have to, because, yeah, <laughs> what you know, you, you really have to. And so there is part of your brain that is just like, cool, bloody hell, eh? Cause, and I guess that's where, where maybe your Britishness kind of comes into its own, which is like, oh, blimey. Mm. But, you know, that enables you, <laughs> enables you to get through it. Yeah. You're all right, though. You're all good. Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, more or less. You know, good. a lot of the time it's been perfectly nice. I'm very, very lucky to have a nice man that I live with and 
a lovely garden. Mm. You know, I've been I try to maintain gratitude all the time for things not being half as shit as they could be. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, obviously I've done fuck all really. Um, I it's great mm. if other people have managed to like you know get loads of shit done. I have not, but that's fine. I've watched my garden grow. Yeah. I've watched my ass grow. And I've just kind of <laughs> held on to my sanity, really, just sort of cuddled my, my sanity every day, you know. And mm. it, it's like, it's hard sometimes. It's hard every day not to turn into a flaming misanthrope mm. when you see, you know, just how, just the kind of low level, you know, on the news. And if you go out, which I've been out very, very little, mm. um, I mean, let alone going on fucking holiday or going anywhere that is, you know, the furthest I've been is South London once. Yeah. <laughs> to, see, to see some friends. Um, and yeah, you see people acting a twat all the time and it's very hard not to blame them completely for everything. But they're more of a symptom. You have to yeah. keep, keep keep reminding yourself. It's it's difficult because they're they're incredibly they are being selfish and oblivious and, mm. and it's and you can't be like that. But let there be no doubt whose fault it is that things are so bad. Yes. And it is the Big fucking viciously useless floundering asshole in charge. Yes, and all the all his surrounding fucking. <laughs> <laughs> I have no words for them. Yeah, it, it, it's you know, but especially him. By the way, everyone should get used to calling him Johnson at this point if they haven't already. Yeah, get in the habit of not referring to him by his cuddly fucking overstuffed teddy bear first name, mm. and you immediately feel your brain click over into a certain type of seriousness. Yes, you know that's good. <laughs> Simon, I mean, in some ways, the answer to popping interest in is fuck all, you know, mm-hmm. um, just like most people, I suppose. I mean, as the second lockdown looms, um, yes. my my club nights feel like a weird dream from the distant past, which is never going to return, yeah. which is a big problem. Um, I'm hardly getting any writing work and I'm not doing any teaching till next year. So I am fucked financially. So hooray for podcasts. At least there's that. Podcasts are kind of COVID proof, I suppose. (laughs) It's been a bit of an emotional roller coaster since we last Mm. spoke. Uh, Highs and lows. Um, I won't go into the lows on here. Don't want to bring everyone down. But the good news is I got engaged. Yay! Yay! Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, she said yes. She said yes. The fool. Uh, whether the wedding will actually happen in the full-scale way we want is very uncertain because it's meant to be in April. Oh. But if we're allowed to have a big party by then, obviously you guys are invited. Oh, oh. lovely. What's your first dance going to be, Simon? Oh. Careless whisper. Do you know what? Um, it, it actually ties into chart music. Does it now? I, I was two months sound, by... please. Two months sound. <laughs> I kind of, I, I was going to keep this under wraps, but fuck it. I, I think the crossover between chart music listeners and people attending the party is pretty small. Um, so yeah, I was inspired by the episode not long ago that said, Sarah and Neil did, in which yeah. you guys discussed Dead Ringer for Love. Oh, the fuck on, yes. <laughs> right? And uh, during the, the height of lockdown, when you just couldn't go anywhere or see anyone, me and Janie, my fiancé, I've got to get used to saying that, not mm-hmm. girlfriend, and a few of our friends um, had a, uh, a Zoom fancy dress party, which sounds twee and ridiculous, but it was a lot of fun. And we um, reenacted, we fucking reenacted the Dead Ringer for Love video. Me as Meatloaf, Ooh, her as Cher, yes. um, for for the uh, delight of our friends. And I think we might uh, reprise that uh, on the big <laughs> Oh, fucking hell, yes. <laughs> oh, man, I cannot wait. 
Who are we going to be, Sarah? <laughs> um, I don't know, just some some of the sort of background heavies and heavy. Yeah, you, you've got to be the posse, sort yeah, of. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, the sort of posse behind, sort of like, like you know, walking behind me, love, going, going, yeah, meatloaf, yeah, go and talk to her. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna chew gum <laughs> and roll my eyes, yeah, yeah. and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get my hair is a bit. Um, I've I've got uh, I've got slightly less hair than I had, but I'm gonna grow my hair starting now, so I can back home the fuck out of it. Can I be that bloke who comes up to you to talk some shit, and you just put the hand to his face please be that yes. guy that would be amazing <laughs> <laughs> you've been doing some podcasts haven't you other podcasts simon you big yeah i oral slag you well um <laughs> you know so so's taylor you know yeah i did i did a manic street preachers thing and i did this um this thing called get into this which is a liverpool based uh, music podcast and uh if i'm on the subs bench i've got to get some football somewhere haven't Definitely, i so man. You know, yeah spray yeah, your yeah. musk around simon i say exactly it's been a while because it yeah it has been a while since i did a chart music i think my last one was episode 50 back in may mm. but um here's the thing i still get bummer dogged in the street <laughs> yes um yeah shout Shout out, right? Shout out to the man who pointed at me outside Sainsbury's the other day and said, Bummer dog. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's it. Nothing else. Just bummer dog. Uh, well, uh, I mean, do do the rest of you get this? So is it I've just me? never got bummer dogged. Uh, no, I've, I, wow. I've, uh, I've remained bummer dog free, thankfully. Um, <laughs> I don't know the words to be flattered or what, that I'm the one who's chiefly associated with bummer dog. It's not even my anecdote. It's Al's anecdote. It's your story I and know. I get associated with yeah, it. Yeah. No one bummer dogs me, mum. That's fucking wrong. <laughs> I, I think, Simon, you're probably the most recognisable out of all of us as well. So, you know, you're, you're kind of... I mean, I suppose there is that. You know. But Al's, Al's never off the telly. That's true. I mean, come on, right? Pe- people of Nottingham... Just pull your finger out and bummer dog him next time you see him yeah. around. I, I'm quite happy to not be bummer dogged at, at any point, but also I will, I will, I will take it in good humour if it does happen. But I hope the guy was wearing a mask. I mean, you don't want to die because somebody shouted from a shout of bummer dog. <laughs> no, you do you? Really don't. What a way to go! <laughs> okay, now it's, this is all my fault that we're so late. Pop crazy young says I, I had a bit of family mither uh, that uh. had to be attended to, which meant I was out the house away from a computer for a couple of weeks. Uh, everything's sorted out now, so yeah, it's all good, That's but good. I, I do apologise. It's been a long while, but we shouldn't have kept you without a new episode to step to. Think of how many weak podcasts you've slept through. <laughs> well, time's up. I'm sorry I kept you. <laughs> Let's move onward, shall we? Because you know what comes next, Pop Crazy Youngsters. We stop, we drop, and we bow the knee to the latest batch of Pop Crazy Youngsters who have padded out the chart music G-string with lovely, crispy dollars that chafe so good. In the $5 section, we have Gerontophile, Hannah Blawid, Ryan Christensen, Ed Sanderson, James Merton, Dave Nichols, Sean... Russell Brill, Ricardo Autobahn, Blake Norton, Ben Squires, Stuart Bran, Ivan Scheel, Otter Lee, Thickly Punchard, <laughs> Rob Burns, Alexander Clement, Nick Dempsey, Julian McKilhatton, Stephen Jackson, Phil Hatley, Peter and Phil, your hand. Oh, Fill your hand, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Respect to Ricardo Autobahn for mm. a fantastic handle. Yes, well, that's um, yeah. if if that's the same Ricardo Autobahn as I don't want to reveal his identity actually, but I I um, if it if it if it is him, then then hi hi Rick. Mm. Ah. And in the three dollar section, we have Humphrey Plug, Calvin Stewart, Phil Maguire, Johnny M, Christopher, and Andrew Nemeth. Oh. 
Thank you, you pop crazy youngsters. Thank you. Yeah, we love you. Oh, and Alan McGregor, Miles Jackson, Karen Watson, and Owen Hughes. You pushed it real good this month, didn't you? Oh, thank <laughs> you. Anyway, one thing those people do when they do give us money on Patreon is they get to tinker with the latest chart music top ten, shall we? Yeah. Hit the fucking music. We've said goodbye to Dave D, Creeper, Twat and Cunt, Lesbian Door Factory, Romo Ralph Wiggum, Flaky Pastry, Frumpy Pumper and Jeff Sex. Which means two up, two down, five new entries and one re-entry. Down eight places from number two to number ten, Dusty Shelbyville. A re-entry at number nine for Taylor Parks' 20 Romantic Moments. Yeah. <laughs> the first new entry at number eight. It's the Posh Grebs from the Nice Estate. <laughs> Swelling up out of nowhere. A new entry at number seven. Priapic Price. <laughs> Last week's number seven. This week's number six. Here comes Jism. Yes, get in. Into the top five, and last week's number one has dropped four places. Spiteful Armoured Bollock. (laughs) (laughs) New entry at number four, The Treacherous Steph. Oh my god. Into the top three, and it's a new entry for Mr. Neil Kulkarni's stomach. (laughs) Oh no. It's a one-place jump all the way to number two for Bomber Dog, which means... The highest new entry, straight in at number one, Suicide featuring Donna. <laughs> oh, what? I know I say this all the time, but what a chart that is. Fucking hell. We've lost some classics this month. Well, I might not have seen uh, the I, I was sad about Jeff Sex. Yeah. Jeff Sex, man, that's upset me. Romo Ralph Wiggum, will we ever see him again? No, I don't know. <laughs> so let's talk about those new entries. I mean, the posh grabs from the nice estate. That sounds to me like one of those kind of um, festival bands, those sort of hippie bands, like mm. with names like Afro Celt Sound System mm. or Dub Pistols. Yeah, 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 definitely a daylight band. Yeah, yeah. Priapic Price. Well, you know what? I open, I open my heart to you. I, I, I open my diaries to you. <laughs> I tell you my secrets from, from my dim and distant past, and this is what well, I get. Yeah, I just get the piss <laughs> ripped out of me. Not once, but twice in this chart. I noticed. <laughs> <sighs> Fuck you all. Fuck you and fuck the listeners. <laughs> no, Prior Pick Price, he's the modern day PJ Probe. You know, but instead of splitting his kind of like his trousers every time he performs, it, this swelling just emerges from underneath his pleated trousers. Jesus Christ. And people just watch the telly just waiting for it to happen. It's like it's like the inverse of uh, Kenny Everett doing Rod Stewart. <laughs> All right, if that's how you want to imagine it, if that works for you, Al, you go ahead and imagine that. Fuck the me. treacherous Steph, well, obviously, you know, a rapper, you know, got, got into a diss war with Roxanne Shanti yeah. back in the mid-80s. Yeah, totally. And uh, Mr. Neil Kulkarni's stomach, well, that's that's obviously late 60s kind of band, isn't it? Yeah, sort of noodling. bit psychedelic. Yeah, yeah just, just kind of jazz yeah, noodling. San Francisco, yeah. Haight-Ashbury, kind of third, sort of third division band, yeah. Um, yeah. You know what, listening to, the, to these these charts, um, 
quite often, and maybe I don't pay enough attention when I'm listening to episodes of chart music that I'm not on, but it's great how just the out-of-context phrases can just slap you upside the head. Like, sorry, can you explain to me what the fuck, the, what was it, a spiky armoured bollock? Spiteful armoured bollock. That's, that's, a... that's Taylor's oh, spiteful right. armoured You know that thing? You heard of that, Simon? Coronavirus? Spiteful armoured... Oh, right, yeah, Been yeah. Been in the papers. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. God. No, that was, that was Taylor saying that he was sick of seeing a drawing of the coronavirus yeah, yeah, right. in the papers all the time. Yeah, it's all coming back to me now, like my name was Celine Dion. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm. Suicide featuring Donna. Well, there you go, man. You know, uh, together at last. <laughs> That is a pairing. So if you want to get involved in all that sexy chart action, Pop Craze Youngsters, you know what you do. You jump on that keyboard and you mash out patreon.com slash chart music and you pledge if you feel like it. There's no obligation, as they say in the adverts. It's not obligatory, but if you don't, you're an arsehole. <laughs> we, no, but we do, we do very much appreciate it, like, even more than ever, given, like... Your God, yeah. Given the... Fucking hell. I mean, you know, we appreciate that everyone's skin... I mean, I've thought this for a while, even pre-pandemic, the, the problem with the sort of economic model of a lot of creative stuff now is it's everyone, everyone who's skin saying to all their mates who are also skin, please buy my shit... And then everyone resenting yeah. each other for it. And it just goes on and on like that when actually, you know, you, you have to kind of uh, look upwards to where the actual kind of ozone layer of assholes sits above us all. Mm. And, you know, that's that's the real that's the real issue. Yeah, yeah, um, that, that's a fair point. Maybe I went in a little bit too hard with my arsehole material. Yeah, slight, slight. So, you know, I... <laughs> Simon Price's arsehole material. Oh, fuck <laughs> Lock down your aerial. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be a bit more meek and gentle and say, yes, if you can, spread it around and share the love and chuck us a few quid, then do. <laughs> I feel well, this is it now. I mean, I'm, in the, I'm in the same boat as you, Simon. Yeah. I mean, you know, my, know. my other revenue streams have, have withered and dried. A bit of business I want to mention, right? You'll probably remember that ages ago, I mentioned that I owned a doll of the Fonz from Happy Days. Yes. But he didn't have any boots, oh, right? Poor uh, Fonz, man. He couldn't go to Owls without stepping on gravel and hurting himself. That was so wrong. Exactly right. Um, all he could do was repeatedly jump the shark, in, mm. like, sort of naked. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, so I, I put out a plea on the podcast for a pair of boots that might fit the Fonz doll. Well, um, a pop-crazed youngster over in Belfast... Um, <gasps> called Mark Hunter, Manix Mark on Twitter, uh, went one better than that. He sent me, right, a complete Fonz doll with the boots on. What a legend. Oh, that's outstanding, man. But what about the other Fonz? Well, that's it. Of course, I now still own another Fonz doll without boots, but I guess that's a problem... I'll just have to live with Can't they share a pair of boots? I suppose they can share one. And it it goes to show, if you want to have... I mean, if you had your Fonz in a three-legged race, (laughs) that would work out, wouldn't it? (laughs) I mean, you could do all kinds of things that... No, let's not go into that. Um, but <laughs> can you give him it, a different outfit? I mean, you know, he did kind of wear the same thing for like, you know, 10 years or whatever. It's probably... No, that's when Happy Days really jumped the shot, was when the Fonz became a teacher and started having a beard and not wearing a leather jacket anymore. No, 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 no. Mm. He had a windbreaker or something, didn't he? <laughs> I seem to recall. It's like, no! Yeah. Fonz don't wear that shit. No, Fonz is like Einstein. You know, Einstein just had seven of the same suit. That you wore every yeah, day, yeah. yeah. That's that's the Fonz, totally. But yeah, this mm-hmm. whole uh, this whole anecdote about the uh, the doll and the boots goes to show: if you want to have your name read out on chart music, you can sign up to Patreon and let Al do it. But you can also just bypass that process just by giving me stuff, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, some some journalists say they can't be bought. I can. 
fucking cheap. Yeah. I'm fucking cheap as well. <laughs> what you have to know then, Simon? What's what's missing? Oh, I don't know. Life? If anyone's got a copy of, I don't know, um, the vinyl of the Rhythm Killers album by Sly and Robbie, for example, just yeah, just stuff like that. Just you know, bung me stuff. I might read your name out. I might not. You know, I might keep oh. keep you guessing. You know, Sarah, you know. do you want to join in this <sighs> this shameless bit of begging? <laughs> Um, oh, I've got to check my Christmas list. Uh, I don't know. I've got enough plants. You know, it's one thing I've done is it's like, so what everyone's done in lockdown is just buy plants, you know, yeah. so I, I don't the need best any one? plants. Um, there's, there's a kind of arrangement of, of succulents that, um, that is quite <laughs> well, like cacti type pleasing. things. No, they're, they're, they're like, they're like benign cacti. They're like the non-spiky cacti. Although non-spiky. I also have a teeny, yeah. tiny, tiny cactus it looks like something out of toy story it looks like if you pull it up there'll be a little face underneath it you know but yeah this is so your living room's looking like a kind of anton corbin video for for u2 song or something like that maybe the killers yeah basically yeah (laughs) um yeah i don't know i'm just i I can only think of really profoundly middle-aged things like that so you know i don't know surprise me (laughs) oh my god or don't i just realized who i'm talking to under no (laughs) circumstances are you allowed to surprise me don't surprise sarah no i don't like it Can I just say, by the way, I should have said this right at the start because I was like, oh, I'm just I'm having to expend so much energy every day. I mean, all of us are expending loads of energy just being at this time, just living through it. And you have to accept that. It's not like, oh, I've learned 20 new languages. Okay, great. But it's fine also if you do fuck all because it's exhausting. But, you know, and I I have been doing this thing of just going, you fucking twats, you fucking assholes. What are you doing? Going to the pub? What are you doing? Hugging. Stop it. Yeah, you know, it's like there are so many people who would not lift an ass hair to stop me from dying, and I, it, it's a horrible mm. feeling. However, right, yes, there are those people. There's loads of them, but there are loads more who actually do give a shit. It's just that they're mostly giving a shit by being away from other people, so you don't see them, and you have yeah, to remember yeah. that. So, if there's any pop crazy youngsters who've been feeling this kind of rage against, you know, the the, the worst of humanity that we're now seeing. That's Ian Brown. <laughs> Ian Brown. <laughs> Ian Brown, Noel Gallagher, Van Morrison. Yeah, they've all, they've all of a sudden, having said nothing about, you know, Black Lives Matter or, or any of these other, you know, extremely important matters, they're suddenly like, oh, no, masks and muzzles, oh, freedom. And it's like, oh, hi, so. hi, guys. What, what's the matter? What, what's all this then? Not been in the papers for a bit, have you? Oh, dear me. But yeah, Ian Brown has just gone, gone off the map now, hasn't he? But hey-ho. But anyway, there are, I just wanted to voice a, a small note of positivity before we get into it just yeah, it's like let's have it. there are still yeah. people who get before shit. we get into this episode <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this episode pop craze youngsters takes us all the way back to may the 12th 1988 a mere three years on from the last episode we covered but it's fair to say though chaps that a lot has changed since then so obvious first question because it's a year we've not covered yet in chart music when i say to you the music of 1988 what is automatically flaring up in those keen musical minds of yours i guess uh acid house mm. plus um uh on a, on a lower level the kind of avant-garde rock music that melody maker was covering at that time mm-hmm. but yeah mainly acid house and hip-hop yeah. yeah, and um, sort of weird candy floss American pop like Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and uh, mm. New Kids on the Block. 
bless him. Yeah. I mean, according to legend and also according to people who were there who really should know better, you know, we are on the absolute cusp of the second summer of love here. Yeah. You know, 1988 is supposed to be the year that we're all in a warehouse feeling the rush and stroking each other's faces. But as this episode of Top of the Pop shows, um, there is there is a dance element in this episode, but it, it's not that kind, is it? Well, it wasn't the... Uh... It was a subculture. It was still an underground thing and it hadn't... It, it, it is fascinating, mm. this episode, because there is a lot of reference to Acid House, but it's like really ham-fisted attempts to kind of take the piss out of it or satirise it. Yes. Which is so odd. And, you know, I mean, understandable, I suppose, but it was... It did just... People think that it, it was a sudden thing and it was... It, it, there was a sudden explosion, but it was the result of, you know, a congruence of elements that, that go back years and years. And it did bewilder people. You know, so they knew it was going on, and it was, you know, and it would, it was being reported in a certain way. I think at this point, um, it was still being kind of indulged as a, a sort of quaint new kids thing by most of the media because the moral panic didn't kick in for another, you know, another while. I think it's fair to say that as far as it goes, in May of 1988, mainstream dance culture is still all about the jacking. I mean, we're about five months away from the sun offering its readers a bizarre acid house t-shirt. Yeah. On the same page, on the same page, by the way, is a story about the horrors of ecstasy. <laughs> Having it both ways. Is it really on the same what? page? Yeah. That's, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. And a month later, of course, is that Franklin cartoon where someone in a smiley face is offering kids pills as they go into a house and there's a doormat that says, welcome to Acid House. And then the next panel, he pulls a lever and takes his mask off and the kids descend down a fiery pit. Yeah. And all oh, fucking hell, wouldn't you know, he's the devil. <gasps> yes. Hail Satan. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're, you know, no one's no one's scared about this new music yet. But I think everyone had a view on it. It was mainstream enough, even though it was an, it was an underground phenomenon. Mm. It was so huge that everyone had an opinion on it at least. And you know, we're about to find out in this episode what the prevalent opinion of a lot of people was. Mm. Well, yeah, that's the thing is that it wrong-footed a lot of people because they couldn't, they kind of didn't have the set of reference points for it as a as a British phenomenon like it seemed quite un-british it was not that it was american even though you know it's obviously it's it's um the the music and the drugs kind of came that's where they originated um but i think it was such a kind of un-british thing and it was very uh you know it was very there wasn't class wasn't really an, an element and it was very sort of relaxed and, and extroverted and purely sincere mm. without any sort of qualifying sarcastic diffident ironic offsetting mm. the thing is that the music stands on its own and you can enjoy it straight but if anybody tries to sort of tell you well the drugs were sort of a separate parallel thing they're kind of inextricable it's sort of a double helix mm. of a situation the nation doesn't really love to love yet but our nation loves to dance it wants to dance <laughs> it needs to dance it's got to dance <laughs> i mean people were dancing throughout the 80s but it was a bit more either flouncing or lumbering about. Yeah, it's funny. My experience of this personally was mostly as a spectator mm. um, in that I really liked some of the records, but the idea of going to a club full of sweaty people with their tops off all hugging each other was repulsive to me. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> a, pe I'm not a people person at the best of times, 
But <laughs> and, and everyone said, oh, yeah, but you haven't tried ecstasy, which I hadn't. Um, it would be many, many years until I tried it. Mm. But they, they said, oh, yeah, but that will change you. You'll turn into a person who wants to hug other people. But I didn't want to turn into that person no. in the first place, you <laughs> no. see. I didn't have the desire to, uh, you know, lose my inhibitions. I I was nothing but my inhibitions. In <laughs> right. Um, I love my inhibitions. I, yeah. I, I've tended them for years. Like basically, you know, you know how COVID has made everybody scared of just the physicality and the, uh, the physical realness and yeah. proximity of other people. Yeah. You just want to stay away from other people. I was like that in the eighties. I was way ahead, man. <laughs> I just didn't want to go near people. You were self-prisolating, in other words. Yes, I was. Yes, I was, Al. I was working on a building site um, during the summer of eighty-eight at the old Billingsgate Fish Market. Um, I was um, working for a flooring company, putting the floor panels down. And mostly the, the people working there were a lot older than me, and they that was their trade. But they hired in a few youngsters, sort of students, to be sort of dog's bodies. And, yeah. and you know, uh, and there, there were a couple of guys my age who would roll in on a Sunday morning, having been up all night, yeah. eyes like saucers. They'd been partying hard at an acid house club and just carry on working. And I was kind of, <laughs> I was sort of eyeing these people with fascination, thinking, well, you know, good for you, but that that is so not me. I went to Shoom, um, you know, one of the big <gasps> acid went house clubs. You to Shoom? Yeah, but only once. Because yeah, I wanted to know what still. the fuss was about. Yeah, I mean, and and it, it was, I, I, I was kind of stood like a fucking balcony looking down thinking oh you know it's I could dive in and get involved but I don't want to and mm. you know I, I could sort I'm glad I saw it just from a sort of subcultural point of view but no no part of me wanted to dive in and and, and get involved I, I just thought I'll stay at home with with a few bleepy records that I enjoy listening to <laughs> and that that'll do me mm. no it, I'm I'm sorry to to kind of to to do the thing but it, it really is it does make everything make sense obviously I was not I was not going to shoot regrettably I was 10 they probably wouldn't have let me in but um you know it it is the kind of it is a thing that unlocks the like I said you can enjoy you, you can enjoy the music it's very it's it's very powerful and amazing music but this is like a, it it does unlock a whole other dimension of it and it unlocks an, another dimension of, of of people and I'm not I'm the same I do not like to be I'm one of those people who will leap out of their skin if you come up behind me by the way if you're going to bummer dog me don't, don't come up behind <laughs> me and tap me on the shoulder I don't care if you then leap leap away to two meters I will turn I will swing around and and no I won't swing around and clock you in the jaw I'll just I'll just scream and then get embarrassed and it will just be just don't do it okay but i don't i'm not a very huggy person i i need you know i need my physical contact to be on my terms and stuff but i've been to festivals and i've been high and i have hugged sweaty strangers and i i've not felt like not myself it's not like oh no what has become of me <laughs> you know what happens in your brain is that a certain kind of expanded knowledge comes upon you and a lot of it isn't even in the form of it's not it's not in the form of words or anything you just go oh oh yes uh, i get it and it's just, you know, it's like that about everything. And everyone else is, you know, in the same state as you. I mean, I've been to festivals where, you know, some people kind of get a bit over enthusiastic and wreck themselves on the first night. But generally by the sort of Saturday night, you know, there's there's some festivals where everyone and you know, everyone is all in the same thing. They're all of a mind. And people are respectful. It's not like people are completely sloppy and just pouncing on you when you don't want it. Everyone is, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, that happens in your brain that is extremely good. The thing with the sort of the BPM of like, you know, uh, 118, 120 or something, it's like sort of elevated heartbeat. And it just kind of somehow confirms and affirms for you this 
new expandy brain knowledge that you have. It's just like, yes, 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 yes. And that's why everyone went so mental for it. It's because it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, because Simon, after um, me, Taylor and David did that 1975 episode recently where we covered um, Wigan's Ovation and talked about Northern Soul. You you kicked right off at us, didn't you? Oh, God. We were talking about how white British people take ages to latch on to black music and you were like, no, 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 drugs. I disagree with David about his interpretation. You always disagree with David, but what's a weird... Well, you're yeah. two. Yeah, need your bloody heads knocking together. Yeah, I, I, I I'm just really um, into the whole subculture of Northern Soul as, mm. as much as, as the music, and obviously, it's a, a forerunner of Acid House, kind of by accident. It's mm. like two species, which um, it's you, you get the kind of evolutionary convergence where um, nature finds the same answer to the same problem of how to survive in a certain ecosystem yeah. without the two creatures being uh one being the ancestor of another um so yeah uh, i i um i i just love i i love the idea of great masses of people um sort of arranging through underground networks to meet up in a certain place and dance like lunatics to a a, a fairly underground type of music all night and and in those in those ways northern soul and acid house are kind of identical yeah yeah I mean, because you were saying that the, the, the reason that they liked fast music because they liked the drugs. There's this tinkling top line that you get on certain soul records, mm. which um, in no way was it deliberately placed there to have this effect. <clears throat> but I do think that it chimes with the kind of high that people were getting from amphetamines, yeah. which were, of course, stolen largely from pharmacies, like the famous scene in Quadrophenia. Mm. Um and and uh, it's it's just one one of these wonderful things of, of music being useful, you know. Um, uh, I, th- I think this is what I was disagreeing with David about. David thought that British people being into Northern Soul music was about some kind of fondness for the retro, fondness for the vintage, mm. you know. I I think, and he he made what's generally a very good point, which is that that white people, sadly, um, often only come to appreciate black music at a chronological distance. It's got to be 10, 15 years old at least Mm. before people will really take it on board. Whereas actual black people by that point have usually moved on to something else, Mm. right? Mm. And he saw Northern Soul as being uh, an example of that phenomenon. I disagreed because I think that Northern Soul was a continuity thing. It was a a subculture that existed in Britain, in the north of England particularly, since the late 1960s. It kind of partly came out of mod culture. Mm. But it was people dancing, firstly, in quite small clubs to obscure black soul music. And they just carried on right through. And it's because the music was useful. Because it had that driving beat to it, that kind of passionate yearning in in the vocals and the chord structures, but also quite often that kind of beautiful tinkling top line. It's like that thing, you know, um, White Lines Don't Do It by mm. uh, Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel. Sorry, Grandmaster and Melly Mel, because Flash wasn't involved. Mm. It's, it's one of those records that's having it both ways, and it? it's giving you an anti-drugs message, but it's got that delicious tinkling <laughs> sound on top of it that just makes... And it's even got snorting noises <laughs> like you know someone doing a fucking line of cocaine on the record while telling you not to do it um that is clearly not accidental but i think that um, a lot of northern soul purely by accident has that feeling that just chimes with uh the, the the feeling of being up all night taking amphetamines and i think it was music that was useful 
And and I think you, you find that with a lot of things like the Balearic scene that kicked off in the late 80s, which was all about digging up flop records, like record company rock bands that tried to have proper hits and failed, but somehow by accident made something that had a certain rhythm that chimed with the feeling of being off your tits in Ibiza. Mm. The the intention behind the makers of the music isn't necessarily the end use. The, the, it ends up being used in a completely different way. It's it's all there for the taking. And I think that that's something that uh, became prevalent in the 80s, particularly with hip-hop. Hip-hop understood that music can be decontextualised, it can be taken from from absolutely anywhere, and it can be repurposed. Mm. And that's what was going on. Yeah. I think that there's... There was a, something deliberate in Acid House, which which came out of its its roots in um, you know in Chicago and De- and Detroit techno. Um, there's this sense of of purpose about it. It's like this is your life's work and the idea of work. You know, obviously that's a that's a, something that always comes up in in all kinds of dance music. Is the idea that this is like your job is that you go to the dance floor and you you do you know eight hours or whatever. And you don't know what to what end it is, but it's an end in itself. It's like this is your this is what you're supposed to be doing. I've definitely had that feeling really strongly. And the music, like I said, just kind of reinforces that. It's like this is it, isn't it? Yes, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, can I just clarify? I completely agree. Um, uh, Acid House was made with that intention. It was made to sound that way. It was made for that purpose. Mm. That's the way in which Acid and Northern Soul are different. Yeah. I've never done ecstasy. Never. And I was there in the late eighties. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But the reason I didn't do Exeter is because I fucking hated house music. Yeah. I thought it was shaking hip-hop. Oh, mate. And people would go, oh, what are you going on about? You you, you want to fucking do an E, then you'll understand it. And it's like, well, what, I've got to take drugs to understand this music. No, fuck off. Do you still feel that way, though? Have, have, you, have you softened a bit on that? There's one or two I really like. I mean, rave music, I was never into rave. I've never been into techno or rave or, or any of that stuff. There's one or two tunes that you just can't deny are fucking brilliant. But I've, I've never felt the need to put a bandana on. So, I mean, Acid House stopped me from a life of class A's. So, you know, thanks. <laughs> Acid House. Oh, <laughs> honestly, I'm just the it, it, the sadness that has come upon me just hearing you two. Like you were there, and yet you you were not because you didn't want to be. <laughs> That's the story of pop music, isn't it? Loads of people who were there who didn't do what they did, but then <laughs> unlike other people, we don't fucking lie about it. It's like when when uh, the Simpsons have a flashback to Homer missing out on the moon landings because oh, yeah, he's yeah. listening to Yummy Yummy Yummy. I've got love in my <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah. if it didn't move me then, I'm not going to lie about it now. Yeah. No, no, no. Anyway, onward! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Radio 1 News. So what's in the news this week? Well, Francois Mitterrand batters Jacques Chirac in the French presidential election, becoming the first French politician to win two elections on the bounce. Donald Reagan, the former White House Chief of Staff, reveals that Ronald Reagan's presidential schedule is determined by Nancy Reagan's personal astrologer, who put off the original date for a summit with Mikhail Gorbachev because the stars weren't right. Fuck's sake. He also claims that every utterance made by Reagan in public throughout his presidency has been scripted, apart from the one where he said, Oh, I've been shot. <laughs> The British Geological Survey announces that the route of the Channel Tunnel, which will be started on next month, will go through an earthquake zone which has never been monitored from the UK and in its last occurrence in 1938 knocked down 14,000 chimneys in Belgium. Celine Dion has just won the Eurovision Song Contest for Switzerland, beating Scott Fitzgerald in the United Kingdom by one point. Fitzgerald's song was written by Julie Forsyth of Guys and Dolls, and one of the backing singers was Des Dyer of Jigsaw, the hero of the first ever episode of Chart Music. Do you remember him, Sarah? No. With a D for Ducky round his neck? <laughs> Is this Jigsaw as in Sky High? Yes. What a tune. Yes. I got obsessed with that tune this year. I never had it yeah. on vinyl, but I bought it, and I've just been playing it non-stop, and it's such a fucking earworm. Amazing track. Zola Budd has announced that she's retiring from international athletics and going back to South Africa after being threatened with a 12-month ban and missing out on the Seoul Olympics after she made an appearance in a race in South Africa last year. Kim Philbe, the third man, has died in Moscow at the age of 76. David Steele has announced that he won't be running for the leadership of the merged SDP and Liberal parties, currently known as the Democrats. The Icelandic government announces the legalisation of beer, overturning 73 years of prohibition. An auction in Birmingham sells off 300 lots of furnishings and effects from the set of Crossroads, which broadcast its final episode five weeks ago, including a clover-shaped bath for three people, pampas grass in a vase... (laughs) And an appointment book for one of the cast with an entry for one day reading 9am, hypnotist, 9.30, psychiatrist, 10 o'clock, dentist, 10.30, plastic surgeon, 11 o'clock, gynaecologist. A very busy day for Amy Turkle, that was. Based on the previous two uh, items you mentioned, I thought it was going to be 7pm, car keys in a bowl, you know. Mm. But the big news this week is that a novelty company in Australia has offered Mick Jagger $20 million for his ashes, which they intend to use to fill 1,000 egg timers, which will retail for a million dollars each. The Trend Connection company state that as Jagger has spent his life writing so many perfect three-minute pop songs, he could spend his death helping his ridiculously minted fans cook the perfect boiled egg. (laughs) A spokesperson for Jagger deems the proposal preposterous. (laughs) On the cover of Melody Maker this week, 
Swans. On the cover of Smash Hits, Tiffner. The number one LP in the UK is Tango in the Night by Fleetwood Mac, so you can yeah. shut the fuck up, the Reynolds girls. <laughs> Over in the US, the number one single is Sign Your Name by Terence Trent Darby, and the number one LP is the soundtrack to Dirty Dancing. So, me dears, what were we doing in May of 1988? I was 20 years old, um, mm. still a kid, really, um, just coming to the end of my second year, um, studying French and philosophy, University College London, um, not yet writing for Melody Maker for another few months yet, um, mm. but very much writing for the London Student newspaper, uh, where I was the music editor. Um, yeah. I'd spent most of the year living in a tiny bedsit in Camden Town, 50 quid a week. Um, and this was when impoverished scum like me could still just about afford to live in Camden. Was it like with Nell and I? Oh, more than you can imagine, actually. In fact, <laughs> I, I think it might even have been on the same street or maybe the next street along where they filmed that. For you, E stood for embrication. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I haven't seen that film for a long time, so you can make all the jokes you like. To rub on us, you fool. I, I actually know um, one, of, one of the guys. I, I know um, Danny the drug dealer. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The actor, he's, he's, he's a lovely guy. Fucking hell. Um, yeah, yeah, Ralph Brown. Um yeah, so I was yeah I was I was living in this tiny bed sit in Camden. Um, the only cooking facilities were an electric camping hob, which I stupidly placed on the carpet on the floor. <laughs> so oh, yeah, no. uh, it me- it melted two lovely circular holes in the carpet, which when I moved out, I had to hide to get my deposit back. Oh, how'd you do that? Um, it came in a battered old cardboard box, and I just put the cardboard box on top of the holes and put the um, the cooker on top of the cardboard box and just prayed, just had my fingers crossed, and I got, I got away with it. Oh, you've reminded me. My mate did something very similar, but with an iron on a patterned carpet. Oh, but what he did was, this was genius, he went off to the sort of corner of the room and he clipped off bits of carpet, bits of tuft, if you will, yeah, and arranged it in, in a pattern over the iron burn. Wow. And you, you can imagine how much work went into that. And yet he got away <laughs> with it. They didn't notice it. Obviously the next poor fucker who moved in, first time they got the vacuum cleaner out. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it, <laughs> it was their problem, then, not his. But it was it was very basic, very grim. I, I had no um, no bedclothes, um, blankets or anything. I I had to sleep under a big overcoat, like a big student overcoat, yeah. uh, um, till my my auntie heard about this and gave me some blankets out of pity. Oh. Um, the only other resident in the building I saw was this elderly Greek widow who wore full black morning attire you know greek widows do and she was the mother of the landlady and she spoke no english and the only word she said to me if if i asked her anything about you know getting something sorted out she just said ni ni which i think is greek for yes right if if i if i was a monty python fan right i would have found that fucking hilarious <laughs> i'm 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 not i'm not though um some of the year my best mate tony moved into this tiny room with me, slept on an inflatable lilo on the floor. And if he brought someone back, I had to lie there and listen to them shagging. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't ideal. But to make things worse, not long after this um, episode of Top of the Pops was aired, I, I think, um, we had to leave. And for um, a couple of weeks, we actually slept... Uh, in the uh, photographer's dark room in the offices of London Student, which was in the basement of the University of London Union, living on pasties and crisps from the student shop. And if I needed a nice. piss in the night, I had to piss in the sink of the dark room. Um, any, oh. Anything more solid than that, you had to creep around the corridors of Yulee and hope security guard 
didn't catch you. So it was, yeah, it was a weird sort of sofa surfing, quasi homeless time. I was a massive goth at the time. This is peak goth pricey we're talking about. Uh, so I, I've, I've got photos from this era which show me having what I swear was the tallest hair in London. Um, oh man, people have thought that Greek widow was your girlfriend. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, she's a bit younger. She could just wear that outfit and so, yeah, totally. Um, we'd have been matching. Um, yeah, so I had like a black biker jacket with a frilly white musketeer shirt underneath and shitloads of makeup nice. and all that. My life was all about going, it was, it was a nocturnal life, um, mm. going out to the Kit Kat the comedy store on a Thursday, full tilt at the Electric Ballroom on a Friday, catacombs in Manor House on a Saturday and probably drinking at the Intrepid Fox or the ship the rest of the time. And I was so fussy about never leaving the house looking less than perfect that I ended up missing loads of lectures at uni, which I'm I'm not proud of but that there was one time there was this one time I, I burst into a tutorial French tutorial um, 15 minutes late and I, I sat down I, out of breath panting and then my nose started bleeding because oh. I, 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 I used to get just um, kind of random nosebleeds uh, all the time it sort of, sort of stopped happening now but I used to just have that and so I sat there having hardly said anything just out of breath 15 minutes late and suddenly my nose starts bleeding I had to run out again so, I mean, oh. God knows what they thought of me. The rumours that must have been going round about me, the French department, I, you know, uh, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't on drugs. I, in, in those days, you know, to quote the Smiths, I swear to God, I swear, I never knew, knew what drugs were. Um, but th- this sort of perfectionism of my look actually helped me stay thin by accident because um, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't even go to the supermarket down the road without getting fully dolled up first and by by the time i got there it had closed so i couldn't buy any fucking food (laughs) i know right yeah Yeah, you've got to establish these very early on in your life and it's funny um hearing you mention terence trent darby there um i that was a rare example of me getting into a pop thing i thought he was amazing right but Mm. um, generally speaking i was probably as estranged and distant from popular culture as I've ever got in my life, maybe excluding the present. Maybe now is the other time when I'm really mm. quite estranged from popular culture. I didn't have a TV, um, so I, I couldn't have watched this Top of the Pop scene if I wanted to, but I wouldn't have wanted to, would I? Because I was no. a bloody goth. <laughs> On your night's out time, did you tell me, oh, I'm going off to the dark room now? And then thinking, fucking hell, that's an exclusive goth club. Yeah, or that I was some kind of, you know, um, arty photographer when really I just needed mm. a piss. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah? Well, I, I mean, I was 10. I didn't really have a life yet, you know. So um, I think at this point I had um, um, acquired a stepdad and two step-siblings and uh, a new bedroom, which unfortunately my stepbrother still considered his bedroom, so he would just kind of walk yeah. in whenever he felt like it. Um, oh. Yeah, I've, I don't know. It, it's there's, there's really not much to say about this time in my life. It was... Um, what was on your wall? What was on the wall of your oh, bedroom? Oh, man. Um, all kinds of shit. I mean, I definitely had... Um, you know the... <laughs> no, hang on. While I was 10, maybe I didn't. But I this was when Athena was a big thing. And I just used to go to Athena and just pick stuff yes. that I liked. And I definitely had that. You know, the, the, the scary Black Panther coming out of the uh, of the darkness. I had that on the back of my wall. Yes. I, I had that on the back of my door. Not tennis woman scratching her ass. Yeah, definitely her. Yeah, just on the ceiling. Or, or a hunky man holding a baby. I had a hunky. I had a yeah. hunky man holding a baby at some point. Yeah, 
but not the one that everyone had. I had like or, or holding up two massive tires. <laughs> no, I uh, not not at this point. No, but um, no, I never had the guy with the tires. But I had. But, yeah, I was really sad when Athena closed down because it was just a really good place to go and just because they had those big flippy flippy board thing and all the yes. posters were in, in the flippy boards and you could just flip through them and it was um, just a really soothing activity. You know, picking those out like a massive. Book. Yeah, like or like the Argos laminated book of dreams, which which has has now been discontinued. Which I'm, I haven't looked yes. at the laminated book of dreams for you know. Um, I was I I had occasion to do that a couple of years ago. I had to get a doorbell, and so I went to Argos and looked through the thing, and I was like, oh, this is such a a lovely soothing thing that I used to do much more when I was a, when I was younger. And it's like I'm quite sad that that's now not a thing. But um, there's so little say my life was very boring and you know it was about to get more interesting but in bad ways i think because you know high school hooray everyone loves high school music though sarah what's 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 flipping uh, your thing um, yeah you i mean i'd you know i was definitely listening religiously to the charts and just picking my favorites from that um and you know religiously watched top of the pops as well um i was definitely into the pet shop boys by now i really love george michael god i miss george michael fucking hell like he was, um, he just popped up on a, a thing the other day, and I was just like, oh, and I felt it. I was like, oh, George. The more time goes on, the m- the better George Michael gets. I find. Yeah. The m- you know, you know, the the more we sort of, oh, I can't speak for everyone, but sort of appreciate him. You know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and it's mm. just it is a, it, it it is a real sadness. Um, yeah, aha! I really loved them at the time, um, and I think it was just not quite. I was I was looking up when um like Roll Like Sushi didn't come out until 1989 but Buffalo Stance was out later mm. this year and that really sort of exploded my brain um and yeah. uh, Salt mm. and Pepper as well I was um yes. I was getting yes. into yeah all my posters came from this uh, student union sale you know somebody would turn up with shitloads of posters and lay them all out on the floor and you have to go in and buy them and it was just the most predictable things you could probably you, you could probably just come up with a list and guess what posters I had but it was I'll, I'll tell you anyway it was the cult the smiths the jesus and mary chain and the cure i think a new order i think they were the main ones mm. not the gone with the wind thing with reagan and thatcher <laughs> no or the one with a soldier dying and the word why <laughs> <laughs> nah nothing nothing political or satirical just miserable indie goth bands well i'm the same age as you simon and i'm busy failing my a levels the last day of college is is coming up pretty soon and i spend that day by necking 12 pints of Stella Artois when it was still, you know, a, a vaguely cool drink. Uh, passing out in the market square, uh, coming to, and then puking so hard that one of the lenses on my reactor like repeats popped out. <laughs> Someone's got a photo of me on my hands and knees uh, attempting to pick the lens of my sunglasses out of my own Jesus. vomit. Yeah, this is a time where I, um, I discovered B for beer. And uh, <laughs> a lot of the, the nights out involved me mistakenly drinking more alcohol than I was used to. And, uh, yeah, bad shit happening. But it's nice uh, that you have a photographic record of the lowest you sank, the worst things yeah, going on. I, mean, well, I, I don't though. know. I know it's out there somewhere. So if there is anybody out there listening who has got a photo of me as a 20-year-old vomiting in the middle of the market square and trying to pick my own lenses out of my puke, uh, burn it. Now, my look at the time... Um, I'm kind of like still in Run DMC double black denim, uh, but I've got a cycling top. Back in the days when I could actually fit in a cycling top, it was the um, it was the Stephen Roach Carrera one, uh, which I bought in London. So I'm either wearing that 
or a Public Enemy t-shirt or an LA Lakers t-shirt or a San Francisco Giants t-shirt because I had a mate at college who went to America uh, for the summer holidays and uh, I gave her a load of money and said, just get me some American t-shirts or I'm wearing a Viz t-shirt. So it's either Billy the Fish or the one of Rude Kid uh, where he tells his mum to fuck off, (laughs) which I would wear in town on a Saturday and kind of like... I'd train myself to lift my arm up to cover the fuck off every time I went past the police. <laughs> Music-wise, I am happy as a pig in shit. I'd finally discovered music that was being made in this era that I fucking loved. I'm working all the nights I could at the local bingo hall as a, as change giver and just spending that money on old James Brown LPs. All that stuff that was became known as Rare Groove, but I didn't know it was called Rare Groove. I just fucking liked yeah. it. And yeah. Just chucking money at Selector Disc and Arcade Records for all the latest hip-hop LPs on import. I mean, to me, this is the high watermark of hip-hop because next month we get Strictly Business by EPMD, Long Live the Kane by Big Daddy Kane, By All Means Necessary by Boogie Down Productions, and it takes a nation of millions to hold us back by Public Enemy. Greatest album ever made. Yes. I've already seen the Juice Crew tour at Rock City a few months ago where, where the, the audience actually booed Rocks and Shante for uh, dissing um, Scott LaRock. And next week, I'm going to see Public Enemy again. So, yeah, this is, uh, this is extremely good times for yeah. a young Al Needham. like to hear it. So, as is the style at this point in every chart music, it's a time to rip open a crate or two and go through an issue of the music press from that week. And this time, I've gone for the NME, May the 14th, 1988. On the cover, Craig Johnson and John Barnes of Liverpool. In the news, Elvis Costello has played a surprise acoustic benefit gig in Aberdeen for the National Union of Seamen, who are currently on strike. After approaching a picket line who were barring musicians from getting to the Shetland Folk Festival last week and negotiating a pass-through. Paul McCartney has announced his new LP, a collection of rock and roll covers that will only be available in the USSR on the Melodica label. According to Maka, the new spirit of friendship opening up in Russia has enabled me to make this gesture to my Russian fans and let them have one of my records first for a change. Meanwhile, Scorpions have announced an eight-gig stand in Leningrad and have already sold 120,000 tickets. Fucking hell. Prince has won the first round of his legal battle with his half-sister after a judge ruled that he didn't nick big chunks of Lorna Nelson's song What's Cooking in This Book for his hit with Sheena Easton, You Got the Look. While his half-sibling intends to lodge an appeal, rumours are swirling that the UK will be left out of his next world tour with no dates announced as yet. Meanwhile, Michael Jackson has announced his support act for the European leg of his Bad World Tour Kim Wilde. According to the NME, Jackson became a fan after hearing her cover of the Supremes hit, You Keep Me Hanging On. Over in the US, Tandare have announced the development of the Thor CD, a compact disc player that can also record. According to the company, Thor CD won't be available until 1990 at the earliest, but will retail in the UK for approximately £300 and will allow users to kill music up to 40 times per disc. 
Alas, the project will be pushed back throughout the 90s due to steep manufacturing costs and would be driven into the sea when the CD-ROM format kicked in. And Grace Jones has had a $1 million tax bill off the IRS and her New York restaurant, Le Vion Rose, has just gone out of business due to lack of punters. Not surprised. I don't think I want to go to a Grace Jones restaurant. <laughs> Are you kidding? Well, you wouldn't want to argue. You wouldn't send anything back, would you? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> Features section. Well, the main feature is a four-page special on, in their words, the newly blossoming love affair between soccer and pop. The main bit sees Adrian Thrills booking an away day to Anfield to interview Craig Johnson and John Barnes about their FA Cup final record Anfield rap. Johnson contends that he hates football records and wanted to do something different for theirs before laying out his credentials by racking out a top 10 which includes Ocean Rain by Echo and the Bunnymen, Bad Young Brother by Derek B, Enola Gay by OMD, Sultans of Swing by Dire Straits and Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen before giving thrills a tenor and asking him to pass it on to Pete Wyler who he owes it to. Bonds, who has just been made to dress up as a wizard for Fleet Street Photographers and is not happy about it, claims that he's been down with hip-hop since 1982, went to see Grandmaster Flash in the Furious Five and claims that they were a real team, just like Liverpool. Meanwhile, Danny Kelly explains why Vinnie Jones should be named Player of the Year and does a list of the best and worst football singles with Sharp as a Needle by Barmy Army at the top of the former and You Can't Win Them All by Brian Clough and JJ Barry at the bottom of the latter. David Quantic has been dispatched to Dublin to witness the full horror of the 1988 Eurovision Song Contest and discovers that it's impossible to actually get into and ends up watching it in the press area, which is a room that stinks of horse shit with one television. After discovering that the video interlude, which features Hot House Flowers arsing about all over Western Europe, has cost £150,000 to make, he concludes that the entire country is praying that they never win it again. Irish taxpayers are paying good money to see Icelanders mime, he writes. Ofra Hazard is in town to promote a latest single, Im Ninalu, which has just entered the charts at number 38, and is still bemused that she is one of the hippest names to drop amongst the pop-crazed youngsters, thanks to her participation in Cold Cut's remix of Paid in Full by Eric B. and Rakim. She tells James Brown that back in Israel she's seen as a mixture of Cliff Richard, Sheena Easton and Samantha Fox... Her national service consisted of arsing about with tanks, but she didn't kill anyone, talks about her plane crash last year, and finishes by having an argument over whether elderly Nazi war criminals should be executed or not. She's very pro on the matter. I don't know if James Brown tried to argue about how stylish they looked, but never mind. (laughs) Terry Staunton nips up to Liverpool to sit in a car in Albert Dock with two-thirds of Icicle Works to discover if they can finally break the top 40 again with their new single, Little Girl Lost, as it's been four and a half years since Love is a Wonderful Colour. We've had a lot of singles that have scraped into the top 50, but if you don't get ten places higher, you're cut off from a large section of the public, says Ian McNabb. 
The top 40 is the important area because then you're automatically into Smiths and Woolies and you get on local radio playlists. We're always knocking on the door, which is bloody annoying. By the time of publication, Little Girl Lost has dropped from number 59 to number 67. Back in Dublin, Sean O'Hagan knocks about with Hothouse Flowers, who have spent the weekend being watched by up to 800 million people on Eurovision and driving around in John F. Kennedy's limo. He notes that they're fucking massive in the old country, as a Vox Pop session at a pub reveals that they're, quote, fucking brillo, no messing, well-dressed hippies, manageable-looking pop stars and sex symbols for the young'uns. And an unnamed hack pays a visit to New Order in the wake of the release of the Quincy Jones remix of Blue Monday, which has just soared ten places to number three. They discuss the rumour that they've re-recorded it as a jingle for sun-kissed orange juice in the USA. Peter Hook told Spin Magazine that they were offered mega bucks, but ended up rolling about on the studio floor in laughter and never committed anything to tape. But manager Rob Gretton confirms that Bernard Sumner did record a vocal. The deal never came off in the end, but they would go on to record a mock-up for the 1993 documentary New Order Story. Single reviews. Jack Barron is in the chair this week, and his single of the week, quite rightly, is My Philosopher by Boogie Down Productions. Here is a rapper who pays lip service to nobody, but just says what he means and means what he says, writes Barron. The antithesis of Spade City pimpdom, KRS-One just lays it on the line to some funky, funky music. It's in your shops. No excuse. Oh, I'm fucking clamming for that album. <laughs> the runner-up places go to You Gots to Chill by EPMD and Parents Just Don't Understand by Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. The former sounds like the tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, only a great deal more psychotropic, while the latter, which has been on top of the hip-hop import chart for weeks, contains a hip-bone-quaking bass and horns that blow harder than a hurricane. Baron approves of the remix of Blue Monday by New Order. It would be hard to ruin such a strong piece of music. Quincy Jones hasn't, no matter how hard he has tried. <laughs> However, it's a coat down for film star Kiss by Scarlet Fantastic. Somewhere along the line, this band and their record company must be blushing. This stinks, period. And that's not even taking into account the stonking boogie mix on the flip. Fucking hell. He notes that the duo have made their tour free to students and the unemployed and believes that's because of their inability to get bums on seats and claims that the sleeve is the worst he's seen this week. Mills and Boone meet Roger Dean in a toilet, uncleaned. Walk Away by the newly titled Kevin Rowland of Dex's Midnight Runners gives Baron the chance to point out that some of his NME colleagues are still misty-eyed about the glory days of Dex's, even though he beat one of them up for being unkind to him in print. Baron speculates that music journalists are going to have to queue up for another biffing because his debut solo single sounds like a deaf person looking for a melody. And even though, quote, his squealing pig voice, the bit that was always mistaken for passion, has smoothed out, this single is limp. 
Orpheus by David Sylvian, on the other hand, is a groovy ballad full of twisting moves, which puts him on the same critical pedestal as Van Morrison, Leonard Cohen, Scott Walker and all the other great dreamers. Joni Mitchell has teamed up with Peter Gabriel for a new single, My Secret Place, but Baron doesn't reckon it. Joni goes through a million key changes, but fails to crack the lock on the door to her secret place. Given the calibre of the people involved, this is very disappointing. Baron notes that Lost in You... The latest single by Rod Stewart has been co-written by Andy Taylor and is therefore not surprised to discover that it sounds like Duran Duran trying to be simple mind. But luckily, they found a simple mind in Rod. Give a little love, Aswad's follow-up to Don't Turn Around is a featherweight soaker-tinged song and a crushing disappointment, while Tomorrow People by Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers is alright, but nothing new, with Baron concluding that the prediction that reggae would wither on the vine with the death of Bob Marley has been sadly proven correct. Do you know, um, Ziggy Marley was once interviewed in Melody Maker, Mm. And he he thanked the journalist for naming the magazine after his band. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, Fucking yeah, yeah. Hell, oh mate. Nothing but a good time by Poison is anything but. They sound like a heavy metal parody with Bernard Manning on vocals, Big Daddy on guitar, and giant haystacks on bass. Fucking hell, there's a power trio. I'll go and see them. Strange Fruit have punted out a swathe of Peel and Janice Long sessions on vinyl, and it's a mixed bag. The Cure's Peel session from 1978 is a reminder that they weren't always a bloated stadium act in bad trainers. Gay Bikers on Acid's long session sounds contrived from a distance. Extreme Noise Terror and Napalm Death's Peel sessions are an excellent primer for the burgeoning thrash movement, but the flatmates, quote, merely squat in the grey caravan site of directionless imdidum in their long session. And I Want To by The Irresistible Force is an explicit gay S&M love song, mostly dealing with how much the singer loves the other chap's cock and where he likes it most. Oh, have you heard that one? Mm. No, sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Play at your wedding. Yeah. You can see where Here Comes Jism got their influence <laughs> from. They just popped it up a bit. <laughs> that singles page by Jack Barron would have absolutely infuriated half of the NME staff because this was mm. at the height of what were known as the hip-hop wars at NME mm. where um, there, there was a, a faction uh, who would have totally agreed with, with Jack um, giving sort of, you know, single of the week reviews to Boogie Down Productions and EPMD and people like that, and yeah. would have, uh, and and uh, th- there are also people, I guess, you know, sort of Andrew Collins type wing of the paper, who would have been enraged that he slagged <laughs> off the flatmates and would have thought that, you know, <laughs> the wedding present with the dog's bollocks that we all ought to be listening to, and mm. it, it really kind of tore the paper apart for a while. It was um, kind of a fascinating little period in music press history. In the end, um, IPC did some. Um, market research where they found out that uh, whenever there was a black face on the front of one of the music papers um, that sales went down and shamefully rather than just sort of riding that through and and thinking you know fuck it we've got to educate the readers they buckled and sort of of stopped essentially putting black faces on the cover and uh, of course this is all quite reminiscent of what 
happened in the dying days of Melody Maker, which uh, Sarah oh, yes. Sarah Neal spoke about so brilliantly in a previous chart music. This didn't put John Barnes on the bog for this issue. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really funny you say that, Sam, because I if I had to pick between the enemy and Melody Maker for that week. It would be who's hip hop on the cover. Yeah. So I'd end up buying the NME more than I would Melody Maker. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because for a while, it's such a shame. Mm. I spurned you all. Yeah. In the LP reviews section, the lead review this week is given over to Love Sexy by Prince. And Sean O'Hagan, after making the inevitable comparisons to Sly Stone and banging on about the cover, points out that while he's more of a singles artist than an LP one, he's still the most important thing in pop. Love Sexy finds new ways of saying the same things and only occasionally does it reflect life outside Prince's hermetically sealed world of fetishistic love and attendant guilt. Playful and perverse, he remains a willing sinner whose purple prose and indulgent pop still triumphs over the best of the rest. Eight out of ten. Even though he thinks that the opening track is called Oh No. Oh, sure. <laughs> the House Martins are split up, and their parting shot, now that's what I call quite good, is a horribly packaged double album of their greatest, worst, and indifferent moments, and not your conventional celebration of a band's demise. But then the House Martins were never a conventional pop band, according to Jane Solanas, who calls their output a ragged cross between the monkeys and madness, and commends them for knowing when to call it a day. 8 out of 10. Fairground Attraction's debut LP, The First of a Million Kisses, is out, and David Quantic takes the opportunity to big up the Caledonians. In England, ugly boys with long, greasy hair pretend to be hell's angels with electric guitars. In Scotland, gentler spirits prevail, doubtless calmed by socialism and a curious belief that Glasgow is Philadelphia or something. Fairground Attraction channeled West Coast jazz indulgence into a streamlined, accessible oddness. Like all debut albums, this sounds fresh and unstrained. 8 out of 10. Bullet From a Gun, the debut LP by Derek B, is as crisp and clean as a newly minted £50 note and an Esperanto of English manners and New York braggadocio. The first cautious step towards a global language of rap, according to John Taig. If LL Cool J is the Jimi Hendrix of rap, Derek B at his worst is its Eric Clapton. Polite, routine and cold. 8 out of 10 again. (laughs) However, it's a coat down for Raise Your Fist and Yell by Alice Cooper. A tedious meat and potatoes HMLP with no blood, bones or bowels. Only pulp and a thin, weak juice, says Richard North. Two out of ten. And the new Bonnie Tyler LP, Notes from America, has been given to Stephen Wells, who listens to the title track <laughs> and another song at random, before deeming it pretty trad fair, competently delivered by a person blessed with a beautiful voice. Kill all session men. <laughs> Bonnie 10, the lads 0, the songs 1. Mark's out of 10. Melody Maker didn't do that at this time. No, and I'm, I'm quite proud that we held out for as long as we did. Um, it, it came in in the mid-90s where um, 
uh, we started having a kind of star system. But even then, it wasn't out of five. It was if something if we thought something was particularly good, it would have a star next to it. And if we thought it was just, you know, genius level, it would have a star with a circle around it. But even that right. felt like a bit of a concession, really. I, I like the fact that we were trying to force people to actually fucking read the reviews, you know? Yes. Not not just to look at a number. Um, yeah. Sorry to be sort of Mr. Music Press historian again, but all of this goes back to... No, go ahead, Simon. This goes back to Robert Criscow, the veteran um, American critic, who basically brought in the idea of commodifying music rather than seeing it as art. And um, mm. uh, basically, he, he started giving albums academic scores like a minus b plus and stuff like that yeah and uh um at the time this kind of um went very much against the grain of people in the late 60s early 70s who were trying mm. to write about music seriously and treat it as a serious art form and he was just sort of treating it very much as a thing that you might buy when you go shopping and might add a mm. little, bit, little bit of pleasure to your life or might take a bit of pleasure away and um Obviously, in the in the end, he won. We're living in his world now. Um, you know, mm. pretty much uh, all um, reviewing is done in that kind of capsule style, very short reviews, and almost everything you read has um, you know a, a mark out of five or a mark out of ten. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I think we at the Maker uh, saw it as a sort of badge of our superiority over NME that they did that and we didn't. Yeah. Because you would read it and you go, oh, is this band I'm not really asked about? And you, your eye immediately goes to the number. And unless it's massively high or massively low, you just won't read it. Well, I just think it's important to credit the readers with some intelligence, which is where mm. uh, Maker went wrong in the end, that it assumed that the readers were cretins and treated them as cretins. But um, certainly in my day, uh, we tried not to do that and tried to at least... Um, credit them with the attention span to actually sit through a few paragraphs and figure out what the person is saying rather than mm. just this kind of which CD approach to, you know, to, to reviewing music. I mean, I don't completely loathe the start. I, I quite liked it. It kind of gave opportunities for subversion. You know, you could kind of give something, you know, you, you could, you could play with it a bit, but it, it is quite, quite limiting. It's true. And the thing is also, it is meaningless unless you kind of have an idea of the writer's taste. Like, you know, mm. somebody's five star review is going to be, you know, that that's that was the way that you would read it as mm. you would go, OK, well, um, you know, Swells has given this one star. Maybe I would like it, you know, because you could and, mm. you know, that that was the way you would sort of gauge it. But otherwise, it is a bit tawdry, isn't it? And also having a, a rating system, whether it's numbers or stars, does that mean that the writers are going to get lent on by the record labels? So, yeah, we could really do with a, an eight at least for this. Well, in reality, um, you know, I, I was writing for Q for quite a while until it shut down. Mm. Um, everything gets a four or a three, mm. you know. Um, no, nothing gets less than less than a three because they would think, well, why are we even putting it in the paper? And uh, they'd be scared of sort of putting their neck on the line by giving something a five, which uh, the world turned out to hate. So, you know, it's it's completely fucking pointless anyway. I, I used to send things in routinely that it had, it had four stars unless I sort of edited it. I thought, oh, shit, no, actually, this is more of a three. Do you know what I mean? It, was, it, was, it, mm. it became so futile in the end. Yeah, and you would feel mean giving things like one or two stars, you know, because you, you could, you know, uh, I as I've said before, I, I probably didn't realise the power that I had at the time and I could actually just, you know, just casually destroy somebody's entire career, you know, by giving them one star. And, you know, it, it's, I, I don't think I ever gave anything of five. I definitely wanted to, but, you know, being being the sort of 
over-enthusiastic, slobbering puppy that I was at the time. But I, mm-hmm. I don't think I was actually allowed. I think you had to sort of clear it, you know, because it was like yeah, a I five mean... was something that was dished out very, very seldom. And it had to be, basically, you had to be a senior writer to, to do a five on anything. Yeah, and, and the, the editor would shave it down to a four quite often, you know, something like mm. that. But I, I, yeah. I was quite quite pleased hearing the Alice Cooper album there get two out of ten. Um I don't know if I've ever heard that Alice Cooper album, but I just like the fact that Enemy in those days would just routinely just um, dismiss or destroy something like that. Because um, those are the days mm. when the music press could be quite cavalier and Devil May Care about that. It didn't, it wasn't in hock to the advertisers, uh, i.e. the music industry. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But I, I, at least you didn't have to do what I used to do when I was working on video games magazines, which was a percentage on playability, graphics, sound, <laughs> all that kind of shit. Oh, and it's and, all 90 plus, that, isn't it? Like nothing gets below a 90. A lot did when I was doing it. I was, uh, I, yeah, I was quite brutal at times. But I did give Sensible Soccer 100% on the Mega Drive. <laughs> but fuck it, I stand by that. <laughs> It's the fucking best game ever. That's kind of, there's the sort of uberification of, of things now, isn't it? Where um, ah, yes. you, everything has to be five because if it's, if you just, just the, that's the minimum. Like, um, no, the, the cabbie did not steal my wallet and throw me out on the, on the motorway. So they kept five. That's just what yeah. you have to do. And I think there's loads of people didn't realise that at first. And so they were kind of giving people, yeah, four, he was a bit surly, you know, and it's like, oh shit, two more four ratings and that guy has lost his gig completely. So I feel like people have got it into their heads mm. now that everything has to be, if you if you don't hate a thing, give it the top mark. I feel like that's the way it's going. Yeah. There's a great bit in the uh, in the new Alan Partridge podcast from the Oast House where <laughs> he, he takes an Uber and uh, he challenges the driver to tell him what score he gave Alan last time he picked him up. And he, <laughs> he doesn't want to tell him, but in the end he goes, all right, on the count of three, we will uh, say what score we gave. And the driver gave him five. Alan gave him four, right? Because <laughs> uh, Alan goes... I never give anyone five. It has to be exceptional service to earn a five from me. And of course, you know, we all know that that means Alan is a complete cunt. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, the routine thing is unless something terrible has happened, you give everyone a five. Yeah. yeah. I'm not even going to mention that you can give us a review. Because <laughs> <No. laughs> the thing is, you've you got to say, oh, yeah, you know, go like this, share that, all that kind of stuff. Well, give us a review, you know, and you're told if five stars or don't bother. I want detailed, detailed reviews from, from everyone listening. Everywhere. That's the only way we're going to survive. In the gig guide. Well, David could have seen Whitney Houston at Wembley Arena, Saxon at Hammersmith Odeon, It Bites at the Astoria, the Steve Gibbons band at the Putney Half Moon. Fucking hell, he's still going. The Junior Manson slags at Club Dog, Finsbury Park, Johnny Cash and Glen Campbell at the Royal Albert Hall, and Pierre Gunt, the number one hard rock band in Finland at the Marquee but probably didn't. Gunt probably meant something different back then as well. (laughs) Taylor could have nipped over to the NEC to see Fleetwood Mac, Real Sounds of Africa and Bongo Go at Mosley Dance Centre, the Sugar Cubes at the Birmingham Diamond Suite, Icicle Works at the Powerhouse, Billy Ocean at the Birmingham Hippodrome and Megadeth at the Hummingbird. Neil could have seen Condemned 84, Close Shave and Vengeance at the Heath in Coventry, but definitely didn't, as they're all skinhead bands. Sarah could have seen Tanita Tickerham at the Leeds Astoria and fuck all else. 
Al could have witnessed fields of the Nephilim at Rock City, Faith No More at Rock City, Steve Hackett at the Royal Centre, and the Bodines at Leicester, Princess Charlotte. And Simon could have seen Napalm Death at the Cardiff Transport Club, the Bible at North Wales Poly, Bonnie Tyler at Cardiff St David's Centre, the Joan Collins Fan Club at Traforest Poly, and Tammy Wynette at the Prest Haven Holiday Camp in Prestat Inn. Well, two things there. First of all, I wasn't living in Wales, so I couldn't. My younger brothers could have. And secondly, have you got any idea how far North Wales is from South Wales? Uh, It's (laughs) in Wales, isn't it? (laughs) Hey, mate, if I've got to go to fucking Leicester to see the Bodines, you can go to Prestat and see Tammy Wynette. All right. In the letters page... Helen Mead is running the angst page this week, and the main letter is from a very irate Patsy Kensit. Reading through last week's NME, I must say I was surprised to find an interview of myself nestling among its pages. Surprised, because after two weeks of conversations between NME and my PR, I was under the impression that I was due to do a feature with your paper in the very near future. Instead, I find that you've resorted to what only can be described as Fleet Street tactics by buying in an interview. I use the word interview in its loosest context. It was in fact only part of a 20-minute chat with Barry Egan, who purported to be from an Irish magazine and was one of 11 I had to do that day. Because of the busy schedule, all the interviews were informed of the fact that a quick coffee and a chat were all that would be possible. Is that all that is required for an interview with NME these days? Features head Danny Kelly responds by pointing out that the enemy has spent the last two years, even before Eighth Wonder had a record out, trying to get an interview with her and getting knocked back every time, presumably because she wouldn't get her usual easy ride. Or poor show enemy. I don't know, man. I mean, buying interviews in is fairly standard practice, mm. um, especially if it's you know a big star who you've tried to go through the proper channels and they just won't. We used to do that with people like fucking Oasis or or whatever in the, in the nineties. Also, it's it's so bizarre imagining a world in which Patsy Kensit was that kind of hot property mm. that anybody was even asked. And yeah. also, what is she what is she implying there that you know the sort of ten minutes and a cup of tea with an Irish journalist that's fine for ireland fuck ireland they can have a shitty 10 minute interview but you know the enemy is supposed to get a better one well you know that's a bit disrespectful oh man the number of times that i've had to like stretch out 10 minutes into however much you know page space i mean it it is (laughs) just like you know it's like put a bit more flour a bit more water and a bit more you know (laughs) Yeah, it's hard work. Yeah. Kevin Simmons of London's enjoyment of Simply Red at Wembley Arena was marred by a security guard who, quote, proceeded to lay his hands on my person in a way I found very improper. When he wrote to the arena asking why, he was informed it was to prevent professional-type cameras being brought into the arena by request of Simply Red's management. If you know the arena, you would know that I would have needed a camera with an eight-foot lens to get any kind of picture from where I was sitting. If you don't know the arena by now, you will never, never, never know. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Matthew DeFlem of Hull has read Richard North's review of Frank Zappa at Wembley Arena and wonders if he was even at the same gig. Get this straight first, bizarre as it may seem. 
the Zappa shows at Wembley were one of the best ever performed pieces of musical extravaganza that this cruel world has ever witnessed. So why doesn't our dearest boy Richard agree? Because the nitwit has probably never listened to any proper music in his life. He is likely to be one of those appalling creatures who think the Sex Pistols deserve a place in history because of their supremacy over the Grateful Dead, his former deities. Has the prickhead ever experienced anything else than total misery in his life? You ever had that? That were we even at the same gig? Better, yeah, yeah, yeah. I miss it. I really do. <laughs> any any particular ones stand out? I, I think in my tenure at the Independent on Sunday, um, it was usually when there was a sort of orchestrated fan campaign. Oh, sort of, yeah, which would be sort of the Kooks. Um, uh, there was you got a lot of was, shit for that, I recall. Yeah, yeah, uh, Pearl Jam and uh, Guns N' Roses in particular. Um, and Connor Maynard, do you remember that little Who? kind of pop star from? Yeah, he was a sort of flash in the pan boy singer from about six, seven years ago. Um, but yeah, at, at Melody Maker, you, you get that stuff all the time, and you kind of wanted it. You know, it was mm. almost as if um, if you didn't have anything particularly big in the paper on a given week, you could at least scan through the backlash page and say, "Oh, maybe I've been mentioned. <laughs> maybe someone <laughs> slagged me off." <laughs> do you ever get that, Sarah? Um. I don't think I did actually. That's uh, oh, you you sad. were at the same gig. I, I was at this. I was even at the same gig <laughs> every time. No, I mean I'm sure I said controversial things and people got annoyed, but I I don't think I had enough time to like build up a a, a you know good head of of anti fandom. You know. Mm. The interview with Wendy James of Transvision Vamp in last week's issue didn't go down too well. How can we take Wendy James seriously when she has a Wurzel Gummidge haircut, a toilet chain round her neck, trying to detract from her cleavage, and when the new single is rubbish, asks Horatio Pomegranate of Twickenham, while Janis Joplin's empty whiskey bottle says, Wendy James, get this straight. You are slagging off the Minogues of this world because they perpetuate the old bimbo sex image and then you allow the enemy to take photos of you leaning into the camera showing an oh-so-tantalising glimpse of your tits? You are full of crap. (laughs) And finally, Esther, this letter. Dear enemy, why is your musical express like WC paper? asks Renee Rosenbach of Paris. You never have good bands in. Always Michael Jackson, T'Pau and George Michael. You pose. All journalists at Enemy are crap. I prefer Smash It's. So I will never buy Enemy until Enemy journalists are Smash It's journalists and Smash It's journalists are Enemy journalists. And cancel the crap tunnel. Keep ugly Brits out of beautiful Europe. Wow, prophetic. That's my favourite one. 56 pages, 55p. I never knew there was so much in it. No. So what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One starts at 6am with a 30-minute C-Fax data blast. Then Edgar Kennedy stars in the 1947 short film Television Turmoil. After the weather, it's breakfast time with Jeremy Paxman and John Stapleton, followed by the Pink Panther Show, Kilroy, Four Square, the quiz show presented by Michael Groth, Play School, and then two hours of county cricket in the Benson and Hedges Cup. 
After regional news in your area, it's the one o'clock news, a repeat of yesterday's neighbours, four square again, and then all well and good, where Suzanne Dando and Christopher Lillicrap take a look at the burgeoning wellness movement and talk to Duncan Goodhue about his dyslexia. After a repeat of the latest round of Come Dancing, it's Gardner's direct line, Ch-ch-ch-vision. Johnny Briggs, the David Copperfield vehicle, Coppers and Co., Newsround, Blue Peter, Neighbours Again, the 6 o'clock news, and they've just finished regional news in your area. BBC Two commences at 6.55am with two and a bit hours of red-hot open university action, followed by half an hour of Thriller Minute CFAX excitement. After three hours and 50 minutes of school's programmes, King Rollo becomes such a chatty bastard that his wizard forces him to have a bath. (laughs) Then it's what's inside with Floella Benjamin, possibly from inside a dustbin. After music time in the news, BBC Two picks up the crickety slack with the remainder of the fag cup and runs with it all the way up to 7 o'clock. ITV kick off at 6 with TVAM, then it's regional news in your area, Crosswits, Santa Barbara, The Time, The Place, My Marriage, a repeat of The Krypton Factor, The Sullivans, The News, Regional news in your area, a country practice, regional news in your area again, all our yesterdays with Bernard Braden, take the high road, even more regional news in your area, the Young Doctors, Portland Bill, the Moomins, Emu's Wide World, a chance to meet some posh kids at a music school in a class of their own, Winner takes all, the news at 5.45, even more regional news in your area, Emmerdale Farm, and they've just started Love Me, Love Me Not, the romantic game show hosted by Debbie Greenwood and Nino Ferretto. Channel 4 starts at 8am with a quick flash of foretell and then closes down for an hour and a quarter before plunging into a four and a half hour orgy of schools and college programmes. After the Parliament programme, it's over to York to Channel 4 Racing, then Countdown, the 1953 biopic The Story of Gilbert and Sullivan, starring Maurice Evans and Robert Morley, and they've just started Channel 4 News. Anything leaping out at you there? lot of Australian soap operas. I didn't even have a telly, so it's a foreign country to of me. Of course. All this, but I'd imagine Sarah being a child at the time. This must be quite Proustian here and all that. It is a little bit, yeah. I mean, I definitely um, I definitely would have uh, made sure to watch The Moomins, which I now know as an adult. Yes. It's a work of actual genius. Mm. Oh, God, what else? I never watched... I was familiar with Neighbours. I felt like Neighbours was on all the time. And I sort of disdained it because I was a snobby little twat. But what about the young doctors, though? What about them? (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I can remember about young doctors is is obviously the theme tune and the story arc about Georgie Saint, who was uh, a pop star. So and it was late seventeen. It was Australian, so you you can imagine. I I I have a complete. I'm drawing a complete blank on young doctors. I don't think I. I must have been playing out at the time. So anyway, I do believe that the table has been well and truly laid for this episode of Top of the Pop. So we're going to break off and we're going to come back later to get stuck into it. So thank you very much, Sarah B. Cheers. Thank you very much, Simon Price. You're welcome. My name's Al Needham. Stay pop crazed. (laughs) 
chart music. Welcome to All Rather Mysterious, the podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of the past with the key of fact. My name is John Rain. My name is Eleanor Morton. My name is David Reed. Please join us as we present to you mysteries that have baffled the world. You had any noises? What about um, a door creaking? Uh, no, uh, you don't have to do this. That weird kadook that yeah, lights well, going off makes for some reason in films. <laughs> All Rather Mysterious. <laughs>